Okay. We will pick up this week from where we left off last week when we looked at the cardinal virtues and what human nature is. We joined the pagan philosopher Aristotle um, in an attempt to understand the structure of human nature. We saw that it's very important for us to understand what the good is of human nature so that we can pursue it. And that's the only way we're ever going to be happy. If we aim at the wrong thing, like what was good for rabbits, eating carrots, and you ate a lot of carrots, you would enjoy the carrots, but you would not be satisfied because you're a human being. If you did whatever it is that angels do, uh, you would likewise not be happy because you're not an angel, you're a human being. And so we looked and found out that human beings are rational animals. And by rationality, we mean that special capacity of human beings to seek out the universal concepts of things. And we apply that in our ethics. We apply that in our arts. We apply that in our sciences. Notice those three rational activities also aim us at the three great transcendental goods. Morality aims at goodness. Science aims at truth. And the arts aim at beauty. Okay, and of course, being Christians and already anticipating, you can imagine that if God is the supreme perfection in all things, that he is the truth, he is the good, he is the beautiful. And of course, that's why ultimately the greatest good is God. Right? We also saw that in order to aim ourselves at the supreme good, we have to be in the highest state of perfection in every element of ourselves. Happiness is the good of all aspects of the human person. In other words, virtue. And we talked about virtues of health, virtues of ethics or morality, and intellectual virtues. The great American mistake is to think that you can reduce human nature to one thing, namely desire. And if you satisfy your desires, in other words, if you have lots of pleasure, then you would be happy. Right? Many people think happiness is having your dreams come to, getting your wants satisfied. But if you're more than desire, then getting all your desires satisfied is not going to fulfill the whole human person. Okay, and this is the great mistake that our fellow Americans are making in droves, failing to understand that we also have an intellectual side and a moral side and an aspirational side and an imaginative side. And for us to be fulfilled as people, all of our human self has to be satisfied. Okay, so Aristotle taught us an enormous amount about human nature and the critical importance of, of those virtues that pertain to our fundamental human structure. Wisdom for the intellect. Justice for the will, and then, of course, courage and moderation, or fortitude and temperance, as we call them under St. Thomas's terms, for the um, appetites or the desires. Questions about that? All right. Now, there's a few things missing, though. And we begin to see that at the end, when we noticed that when it came to problems of suffering, Aristotle's solution was partly satisfying because if you suffer and you're a good person, you will bear up under it better than the vicious person, the man of vices. That's what we mean by vicious, not like mean like a dog, but just whatever vices you happen to be engulfed by. Um, but real happiness, he kind of admitted that that requires divine favor. The gods have to like you and specially favor you, and then you're really more like a god than a man and that's called blessedness. But then that's for the occasional person. You know, if you're a Desus, oh, wonderful, Athena loves you. But if you're Jeff Teal, I'm sorry, <laughs> you just got nothing. Right? And that's the reality for most people. We don't get tremendous fortune. You know, even in America, there's a few people that seem to have enormous fortune, maybe way more than the past, but it's certainly not a widespread effect. So 
That seems like not a really universal human solution. That seems to be a hit or miss divine good luck solution. And so that seemed to be one of the things that didn't go far enough. But we also saw that for Aristotle, there's a problem, and we see the other side of it with the pagan religious folks. There's a problem with the highest human activity. Here's the problem. <laughs> uh, dry erase. No, it's good. We got to check it. The pagan religions had a whole myriad of gods who are persons, but who, emerging out of the muck of the world and changing, going through change, are imperfect. The pagan philosophers had a real problem with the imperfection of the gods. They knew that can't be right. So they aimed at something perfect. But since the gods emerged, they knew they weren't persons, or thought they knew that. And so they called them perfect, but they really were more like ideas. Now, one of the things we're going to learn is however you conceive of or characterize God has an enormous impact on your life. So, for example, let's suppose you think God is a force. Well, if you think God is a force, then your activity, your highest activity, is going to be figuring out ways to manipulate, make use of, invoke, right, that force. Not unlike the Jedi in Star Wars trying to constantly do that. Or like uh, witchcraft, an attempt to get at the forces and use them for whatever mission you have, your objective is. If God is, or the gods are ideas, then the highest activity of human of the human being isn't going to be some form of use or utility, like the force theory. It's going to be knowledge, wisdom, academic. And so you're going to have people studying God as though he's an idea and trying to understand him. And that's precisely what the Greek philosophers were doing. The highest activity was wisdom. But if God is a person, right, how do we relate to persons? Well, the highest mode of activity for person-to-person relationship is called what? Yeah, what's the highest kind of relationship called? What verb do we use? Hey, Jonathan. Love, exactly. So if God is a person, then the proper highest activity of a rational human person is going to be love. So you can see right away where we Christians are going to diverge from the Greek philosophers, right? We're going to end up with love. The problem is the Greek gods really weren't lovable because they were so corrupt. So it's hard to drive love toward gods that are wicked. You're going to end up trying to manipulate, use, placate these gods so they don't get you, or try to manipulate them to your effect. Because the gods are really just big people, big human beings. The pagan philosophers at least had the perfection, but they were more ideas. Now, we know from our first couple of classes that God exists as a perfect person. This is the third great tradition that informs our faith. You'll remember the just shocking, absolutely shocking thing that happened when Moses encountered God at the, um, I almost said the fiery furnace. Wrong story, the burning bush. (laughs) There's a lot of fire stories. The burning bush, right? God comes down and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And like, okay, right. But here's the thing. Nobody ever knew his name. 
Okay, they didn't know. Was it Horus? Nope, can't be Horus. Not like that. Ra? Nope. Aphrodite? Nope. Well, who is it? Nobody knows. Abraham didn't know. Melchizedek said he's the most high God, so that's pushing him up. But which one? And so Moses, God says, all right, I'm going to tell you my name. Moses is like, oh, get a piece of paper. All right. He's ready. And what's God's name? I am. You're like, whoa, that's weird. How about Bill? Can we go with Bill? No. I am. That is the weirdest name, right? Now, here's the thing. In the Hebrew Bible, names reveal the essences of things. So when you say I am, what are you really saying? Well, the I means you are a person. The am, eternal activity, contains being, existence in yourself, hence omnipotence, thus perfection. For the first time in human history, God's identity was revealed. And this is another reason we know that the Jews are a miraculous thing. Nobody else came up with this. And Moses was just some bum. Shepherd guy, old, in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep. A total hick. You understand what I'm saying? And he gets the name of God? What? Don't tell me he came up with that. Aristotle didn't come up with that. He was given it. You understand? Miracle. Miraculous revelation. Once we know that God is a perfect person, and we know because God created the world rather than emerged out of the world, he is perfect prior to the creation of the world. You understand that, yes? It follows that God is perfectly good. And we'll see the implications of that in just a moment when we join St. Paul. But for all the goods that Aristotle provided us, there's a few other critical things that are missing. And they all revolve around the problem of sin. And here, interestingly, the pagan religions are closer to the truth than Aristotle, even though, as usual, they get everything mixed up. You say, what do you mean? Well, for one thing, the pagans understood, all pagan religion understands, that there's a final judgment at the end of all things. Everybody is going to get judged. Right? If you've studied any of the ancient ones, you know at the end of time there's a big scale. Remember the Egyptian one? The heart of the, your heart is put on the side, one side of the scale, and justice and truth represented by the goddess Ma is a feather, very light, on the other side. And the question is, is your heart so full of the heavy weight of sins, doesn't balance with justice? If that's the case, you're found wanting, and your heart and your soul thus is thrown down to the crocodile god Amit, who is down there, ready to eat you up. Okay? So you must have the balance, the perfect lightness of a heart. You understand? And you're like, well, that's amazing. There's, that's so correct, understanding that we're ultimately going to be judged by justice and truth. Yes. But then what did the Egyptians do with that? Well, you go into those tombs. Have any of you been to Egypt? Gone in the Valley of the Kings, perhaps? Or seen the, the History Channel programs about these things? You've seen the hieroglyphs, yeah? What is the Book of the Dead? It's a collection of about 792 spells which enable you to pass through all the divine judgments once you get to the other side. And they're basically all little cheat codes. You're like, what? Cheat codes? Yeah, because remember, the gods aren't perfect, are they? They don't know everything. They can be bought off. Ah, right? You're like, well, then the cheat codes can be helpful. Exactly. So they put them in the Pharaoh's tomb so he could reference them during the judgments. That's a lot to remember, okay? But you're like, what? What happened to justice and truth if you can cheat? Right. 
That's the problem. The pagans had it right that there is a divine judgment. Oh, we're going to get what's coming to us, right? But they had it all wrong when they thought they could manipulate their way around that. Another place where the pagans, again, related to sin, had something right that the philosophers don't seem to get right. What happens when you do something wrong in Aristotle's system? I mean, evil really is just a deficiency, and if you're not doing very well, then do better. But in reality, sin is not impersonal. It's very personal, isn't it? It's the things we do to one another. And the pagan religion understood it's the things you do to the gods. Something is owed. That's nowhere found in Aristotle. Aristotle wouldn't have any clue what to do with the experience that people have of guilt. The need for expiation, the need for forgiveness and redemption. The pagan religions understood this, didn't they? They had a sacrificial system. Everybody had sacrifices. They all knew you had to placate the wrath of the gods. Something was owed. Something had to be paid. And it always involved death. Not in Aristotle. The whole psychology of guilt simply missing. And here's a third thing that we find missing. And that is this curious effect of distortion within our experience. See, Aristotle suggests that through virtue, we can actually get to the point where we're friends with our desires. So your desires will only aim at what's good for you. Wouldn't that be nice? How many of you have that as your common experience? At best, you probably would say, my relationship to my desires is more like a lord over a slave, a captain over a ship, a general over an army. It requires command, right? Because my desires tell me to do this, and my moral reasoning says, no, don't do that. Mm -mm. Go this way. They're constantly in conflict. But why should that be? I mean, shouldn't we expect at least a 50-50 thing where half the time your desires go right and half the time your desires go wrong? But that's not the way it goes. Evil always seems attractive, and goodness always seems tedious and laborious. But why? If goodness is good for us, it's called the good life for a reason, shouldn't we be able to understand that and then always pursue what's good? And yet, even when you know what's good, you can still find evil attractive. In fact, even when you know what's good, you can still find yourself doing what? Bad. How's that, how is that even possible? Well, again, not found in pagan philosophy. St. Paul has an answer, right? It's called the fall. And there's a distortion within our experience. Our desires and our intellects go like this. We do not, in fact, desire what's good for us half the time. And even when we understand what's good for us, our desires are distorted, out of whack. We do not have a perfect coordination between what's good and what's beautiful or attractive. In point of fact, what is good is beautiful and attractive. And one of the things we try to do in terms of educating ourselves, both our desires and our minds, is to try to link those up through education. But even still, when you do that, you can still find something attractive that you know this is not a good thing to do and still find it attractive. You're like, it's ridiculous. This is frustrating. St. Paul talks about that frustration. 
the whole chapter of Romans 7 is that very struggle. Aristotle has nothing to say about that bizarre thing that we human beings experience. So, on the question of sin, weak, really weak. The pagans had all these elements, but the way they dealt with them, at least they're closer. So we inherit an awful lot from pagan religion, pagan philosophy, and an enormous amount from Judaism, but there's pieces that still have to be brought to fruition. Everyone understand? Okay, so let's dive into Romans uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 18, and we'll look and see what St. Paul has to tell us about God. I'm going to use this eraser and erase this for us. And let's keep in mind that we're interested in God's goodness and the impact it's going to have on us. Because if God is good, it follows that he is two things. One, he is perfectly just. Two, he is perfectly loving. Which would be just fine were it not for the fact that that seems to create a big problem for us. Right? You can already imagine what that's going to be. If God is perfectly just, then we all have to get what's coming to us. But it's just possible that what's coming to us isn't roses and chocolates. Huh? In which case, we're like, well, let's talk about his love then. Shouldn't we just start there? Okay, but don't you want him to be just? You're like, no, not really. You want Hitler to get away with it? You're like, oh, well, that's different. Is it? See the problem? If he gets what's coming to him, it seems to follow that we get what's coming to us. See, we kind of value both of these. Problem, yeah? Only Christianity solves this. Let's see how. All right, you got your uh, text, Romans. Told you to bring your uh, text with you this week, uh, New Testament. Hopefully some of you have them. I see very few, but next week, make sure you bring your Bibles with you. We'll be looking there. Oh, it's all in your phones, too. You can pull up Romans on one of those, um, one of those um, Bible websites. Bible things. Bible things. All right, so we're going to join Paul. For chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So we start off not with God's love, and isn't that nice? Strangely enough, we start off with God's wrath. Now remember, last week we talked about how every single human capacity has a proper end, and that includes anger. What is the proper end of anger? Well, we see God's anger, so we know. Injustice. God is displeased by wickedness. But it's not just the wickedness of men, not just their conduct. Look at that. It's who suppress the truth. So it's two things that are the problem. Notice that this is an intellectual vice and, of course, a moral vice. And these always go together. Always go together. You say, why? Well, because of what it is we do when we do something wrong. While you're doing something wrong, as you're planning to do something wrong, after you've done it, what do we do? 
Yes, we do. We tell ourselves a little story. Right? We always have a story. The story explains it away, makes allowances for it, justifies it, blames it on someone else. Yeah. That's what we do. Because if you really told yourself the truth about it, it'd be really hard to stick to your wrongful conduct. So we always give ourselves a tale. But the tale is not true, is it? Because the truth is we ought to do what's right. And rightness is best for us. So every time we commit an injustice, we start lying. We start suppressing the truth. Again, remember, intellectual and moral vice go together. You cannot pursue the truth and dispense with goodness. Similarly, you cannot dispense with goodness and suppress the truth. God gave us two systems, which are twin sides of conscience, that are designed to help us with this. To help us deal with injustice, he gave us guilt. To help us deal with truth, he gave us doubt. You follow your doubts. Why? Because they're going to point out problems with an argument so that you can figure out what's true. If you have doubts, that's not a bad thing. It helps aim you at the truth. Similarly, guilt helps aim you at the good. What's weird is everyone knows Catholics, they love guilt. And people think, but we religious people, we're all, we hate doubt. Well, a lot of religious people might have issues with doubt, but we do not because we love the truth. Okay? Whereas out in the world, they don't want to talk about guilt at all. Right? Get a shrink, take drugs, you'll be fine. And then allegedly they're so into their doubts, but not because they're after truth. Right? You heap doubts on things, you never have to think about it. But the reality is, these are twin sides of one system that God gave us called conscience, which is designed to aim us at truth, loving, not suppression, and justice. And thus, because truth and goodness are the objectives of these two systems in us, you can see why God is none too pleased when we suppress the truth and act unjustly. Remember, He is perfect justice. He is the truth. And so we're really rejecting Him. Let's see how. Four. 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So there you go. There's the cosmological argument. Right? God made the world, and we can use the world to know things about God, namely his existence and his nature. All-powerful, perfectly good. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So once you understand who God is and that he is your supreme good, it follows you should start to react to that. And if you start to love God and react to that, the first thing that you're going to realize is, whoa, God is really huge. And he gave us everything. The world, the plants, the stars, the water, all of it. Coffee in the morning. And you're going to be like, it's pretty good. I very appreciate that. And thus, thanksgiving. Right? You would think. But these people, they did not thank God. They did not honor God. What, look what happened. They became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Now, what does it mean to be futile in your thinking? And this is really important. Empty. 
vacuous, meaningless. Why? God is the good, the true, the beautiful, and the real. Imagine if you pursued a life exactly the opposite of those things. What would that life look like? Not truth, but what? Lies. Paul said, it may all be couched in lies. <laughs> Not beauty, but? Ugliness. Ugliness? Good. Not goodness, but? Bad. Evil. Evil. And not reality, but Fantasy. illusion, yeah. fantasy, hallucination. Imagine that. A life aimed at those things. Would you not say that's pretty vacuous? Why? Why is that the case? Why is a life that rejects God, that pursues evil, necessarily empty? Here's the reason. Because we deceive ourselves into thinking that the choice between good and evil is like the choice between cookies and cake. You think both of them are positive options and one you should choose and the other you shouldn't. If you think of it like that, it's going to be very difficult to choose between them. Why? Well, because both cookies and cake are good. You're like, oh, that's right. Right. The choice is between dessert and nothing. See, we don't think evil is a substantive thing. The church calls and the philosophers call evil a deprivation, or for short, a privation. It's a lack of a good that ought to be in something. So if you make a cake and you leave out the eggs, you're like, mm, that didn't come out quite right. Yeah. My cake is deprived of something it needed to have. Not a good cake. Well, when a human being is lacking moral virtue, lacking intellectual virtue, you are depriving yourself of something you ought to have. And evil is emptying you. It's like a cancer that eats away at your core and diminishes your soul and who you are. You say, well, then why are we deceived into following it? Because it presents itself as though it's good. You see, evil can never offer you something that's purely evil. Pure evil is just nothingness. So the way evil works is it twists a good and pretends the twisted good is better than the real good. If you think about all the things that you struggle with temptation-wise, every single one of those is a version of that trick. It worked on Eve in the garden, right? The fruit was, looked good. It was tasty. It was desirous to make one wise, all true, but they weren't supposed to eat it. And so what did the serpent do? He offers Eve a false motive as to why God told them, don't do it. There's the twist, you see? And she went for that. Every single time we commit something evil, we trick ourselves or are tricked into buying into a false narrative about it. So the devils, all they can do is offer us goods that are twisted but they never offer you the true good. So whenever we pursue something bad, we become diminished, we become less real. Have any of you read C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Great Divorce? Yeah. Okay, that's an example. The ghosts are less real, and the closer they get to heaven, to reality, what happens? The grass starts to cut their feet. Because when you are nothing but a shade and you come in contact with the real, it hurts. 
And that's what happens to people who are truth suppressors and live their lives consumed by these injustices. When they get anywhere near the light, they run. So you have to understand, God doesn't have to toss people into hell. They can't stand to be anywhere near him. The only kind of people that are going to be in heaven are people that love goodness, that love truth, that love beauty. If you really have no time for any of that, the last place you want to be is heaven. Understand that. The greatest commandment is the greatest because it is the only possible way to be fulfilled. Because God is the truth. God is the good. God is the beautiful. And when we reject that, when we have it presented right to us and we say, no way, I prefer to live my unjust life, then we start this process. And when we pursue something evil, we might feel pretty pleasant for a while, but then it just doesn't seem to work. And we get more degraded, don't we? So one affair leads to two, two affairs lead to three, and then you're like, wouldn't two women be better than one? Right? Twosomes, threesomes, foursomes, fivesomes. Pretty soon you got whole groups. Right? The degradation continues, and every time we think, this time, finally, I'll be satisfied, and what happens? Eventually you end up a sex addict. Right? These people, you know, you hear about them. They're meeting in parking lots, meeting total strangers all the time. Alcohol. This is what happens with us if we become alcoholics. Drug addicts, right? Every sin actually works like this. How many shoes can you buy before at some point you're like, this just isn't really working. But we deceive ourselves, right? And our society is happy to deceive us. Your problem isn't too many shoes. You need some blouses. Don't you need a new purse? And you men are like, this is what I've been telling her. Yeah? Same thing goes for you with your boats and your cars and your video games. You're like, come on, Jeff, let's just keep it quiet, okay? We do the same thing. And we had the truth about this when we were five years old and we suppressed it. You say, how do we know this? Because you made your list for Santa, right? All the things you wanted. Okay, Santa, these are what I want. Next day, Christmas comes and you get all those things. Question, how long did those things make you happy? You get bored in what, about four or five hours? Four or five days, if you're lucky. And then you're making next year's list. Right? You say, well, that's dumb. Okay. When you're 15, you've just upgraded the status of the things. Right? Now you want to get into this college. Now you want to have this boyfriend. Now you want to have a new car. Right? Still doesn't work. And we're no better, are we? No. Because then what do we do? Well, we need a better, bigger house, a job promotion. We need more prestige. We need better kids. We need a new spouse. It never stops. But when we were five, we had all the evidence that constantly trying to change the things would make us happy. That's never going to work. Why? Because you are not things, you're persons. And the only possible thing that's going to satisfy persons is what? Other people. People. Things have their value in the proper priority. But if you make that mistake and you start pursuing things over persons, your life is going to be empty. Right? The 1960s generation pursued drugs, sex, 
and rock and roll for a reason, right? And it is because the World War II generation came home and what did they do? The so-called greatest generation. Did they pursue virtue? The 1950s thing pursuit, right? And all these kids that came out of that knew they were not being loved and they exploded. That's what happens when we do that to our children. Our vices corrupt the next generation. And so you get a continual corruption to the point where things that we don't even think conceivable, right? Like, oh yeah, I'd love to be like Jeffrey Dahmer. <coughs> And then I could eat my murder victims, make soups out of them and steaks. You're like, no, sorry. I can't see that as plausible. <coughs> Frankly, I can't either. But jealousy is plausible to us, right? Pride is plausible. Laziness is plausible. None of it should be plausible. It's only plausible because we're still stuck in those things. All sin is irrational. All sin distorts us. And if you pursue it long enough and darkly enough, you get to the point where even cannibalism of a murderous form, like Dom or these kind of people, these things can start to become plausible. We do not want to be on this path. But when we reject the light of God, we end up pursuing darkness. This is the critical thing to understand. There is no middle ground. If you reject light, you get darkness. If you reject truth, you get error. If you reject good, you get distortion, and your life becomes empty. That's what St. Paul is saying. They became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened as they started to come up with all kinds of wonderful abstract theories to justify and explain away their misconduct. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men or birds or animals or reptiles. So it's bad enough that we come up with all these schemes to justify ourselves. Now we come up with new religions to justify it too. Here's the thing. If I've rejected the true God, I still want to feel religious. I want to feel spiritual. So what I'll do is craft for myself gods that are a projection of myself. So if I want a God who's really understanding and nice, right, then I'll come up with a God who's kind of like a senile old grandpa. Notice the Lord's Prayer. It does not say, Grandpa. It's Father. You're like, right, Father. A lot more sternness, not kindness. God loves you. He's not interested in kindness. Love is way beyond that. Jumping ahead. Way beyond it. But that's what we start to do. We start to fashion for ourselves gods that are the projection of our own distortions. That's what they did. <laughs> We can even fashion Jesus in our own distortion. Yes. Jesus is just all right with me. Yes. A song from what, 1969 ish, I think? He's a cool dude. Yes. He wasn't, but yes. No, he wasn't. That's the problem. You see what we do? It's, in other words, it's not just pagans that do this. Some of us were Protestants. If you think back to your Protestantism, maybe we were doing this a little bit. You could grow up a cradle Catholic and be doing this too. Oh, yeah. Make up a false god for yourselves out of the real one. I, I um, jump in. I, so I, and I follow what you're saying. I absolutely agree. There's a, I always understood that there was a kind of a, another layer. Like you talked, you, you talked about the Our Father or Jesus or whatever. That part of that is just the, the 
unfathomability of being able to say, God is my daddy, Abba. God is my daddy. So while your father can be stern and expects things of you, your father always loves you no matter what you do as long as you come back. Correct. We have a multitude of images that help us understand who God is to us. And what we tend to do is pick one or the other and fail to understand they're all true at the same time. So it's not just developmental. We're a piece of clay and God's the potter. That's pretty low. We are pretty low. Okay, you are a thing. Maybe you'll become a work of art. Will you at least cooperate as being a work of art, right? Next metaphor. We are the sheep and he is the shepherd. Well, at least now we're divine pets. We made some improvement. But still, that's pretty low, right? Pretty low. Then, father and children. Now, here we get different versions. There's the Abba Father, but there's also the Roman Pater. The Roman Father, authority, stern, but also Papa, Daddy. They're both in there. And then ultimately, the bridegroom and the bride. And we have a lot to talk about that later. So, here's the thing. They're all true at once. They're all true at once. And for us, that's sometimes difficult. We're like, well, how can I be a pot and a bride? Because we are not just persons, we are person things. We are persons with a specific structure and order. We are created. And so it's both true at the same time. So we end up fashioning for ourselves false versions of God that we project. Now, a lot of times, you know, my college students will laugh at this point and say, well, pagans, obviously. We're obviously better than that. We're more sophisticated. But are we more sophisticated? I mean, anymore, what religions do we really have? There's only two. There's theism and there's atheism. Is atheism an improvement on paganism? At least the pagans believed there was something divine. At least the pagans believed there was a spiritual world. At least the pagan believes that good and evil were real and there'd be accountability, right? Oh, I'm sorry, but our atheist materialism is in fact further down the degradation trail. I mean, we have philosophers now, people in my own profession, I'm sorry to say, who have gone so far as to deny there's even the mind while using it and presenting a paper at a conference, they deny the mind is real. They say it's an illusion. And you say, well, if it's an illusion, to whom, who is the person having the illusion? Obviously. True suppression on a societal scale. We are not more sophisticated than these people who fashion gods and turn them up with jumbled animals. So, God allows this to happen in our intellects. Intellectual vice becomes rampant. But notice now in our conduct, three times, look at verse 24, 20, let's see, 6, and, well, there's three of them. Three times in the next few lines, God says, God gives them up over to the lust of their hearts. 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. 28, he gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. Why does God do this? 
Well, the first reason is because of this. Love requires freedom. God is interested in lovers. That's what this whole thing is about. There is no such thing as divine rape. God does not drag us down to the altar in chains and say, you will be my bride. That's the Calvinist mistake. Those of you who have Calvinist predestination doctrines where God causes you to have to believe or causes you to go to hell, nonsense. We have free choice because God wants genuine lovers. He doesn't make you do it. But then it follows that if you reject him, he has to have somewhat of a hands-off approach, right? If every time I take a knife and I go to stab it into Jonathan, it turns to butter, this is not real. There has to be a real material universe with physical things that stay the same even when we commit horrors against one another. And so, God gives us up over to it. Freedom is real. Again, for those of you with Calvinist or Reformed backgrounds, since I've talked to some of you already, notice Romans 1 starts with freedom as a precondition. So if later on you find lines in Romans 5 or Romans 9, which the Calvinists will try to grab onto and say, see, God causes this. Remember, you read Romans 1 and interpret Romans 5 and Romans 9 through Romans 1, not the other way around. Okay, we're not interested in proof text theology. We're theological gymnastics. Will you just take a line out of here and a line out of here and ignore the argument? This is an argument. From the very beginning, St. Paul is arguing human beings are free. So when Calvin says, no, God causes everything, that is false. God does not cause everything. He does not cause your sins. You do. And if you didn't, you wouldn't feel guilty for it. You would say, wow, that's a puzzling thing that I just did. Curious. But you don't. You feel guilt. You feel remorse because you know you could have done otherwise. Yeah? That means we're free. So we're free. Love requires freedom. First, that's the first reason God gives us up. Secondly, take a look at chapter 2 and we'll see the other reason. I, can get, I think it's line 4. If memory serves, I wonder if that's true. Hmm. Ah, yes. Do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So you might wonder, if you start committing vices, why doesn't God just splat you? Because he wants lovers. He loves you too. And he has this idea that if you pursue vices and he lets them take their natural effect, that like an illness they will cause you to deteriorate as a person and be increasingly miserable and hopefully learn from your mistakes. In the appetitive vices, we call this bottoming out. I hit rock bottom. Couldn't drink another drop and be satisfied. Right. But that experience is not just true of alcohol or drugs. In reality, that's true of many other things. Like marriage. After your first marriage collapses, you're like, Ugh. unfortunately, many of us then jump into our second marriage. And when that collapses, hopefully, some part of you says, hit the brakes and let's do a review. And you start to think, hmm. Now, the first thing we do 
we engage in a mixture of true suppression and honesty, and we say, boy, that person was terrible. They probably were terrible. But then sometimes you look at yourself and say, actually, I was a little terrible too. You know, minorly terrible, minorly terrible. Yeah, but, right? So, God is hoping that we'll come around. Turn the ship. And what he has done is given us an entire lifetime of signposts that tell us what's true. From the time you were born until your final roles in life, there are love flagposts. The first one was what I call these the natural form. I think there are seven of them. The first one is when you're born and you're a child. Your first opportunity to love is to love your parents. Some of us do better than others. Then, hopefully, you had some siblings. And if you did, your second opportunity to love was your brothers and sisters. You say, well, that didn't go so well. Okay. Third, friends. The only non-familial form. After that, spouse. Big one. Huge one. Heralded with cake and fireworks. Massive hope. Right? Have you ever seen people on their wedding day that are depressed? It, you're like, oh, that's not going to work. Mm -mm. No, they're thrilled. They have tremendous optimism. I mean, that is a huge, you're start, starting at the top of a hill and God's pushing you over. Go! And then look at the train wrecks that we make of that. Oh, we'll talk about marriage later. Not today. <laughs> Next, children. This is one of the biggest flag posts because maybe you've screwed everything up so far, but then you've got this little tiny person and you have got an opportunity of opportunities now, don't you? Huge. And there's something within you on a psychological, sociological, biological, physiological, this kid came from me that says, I must love this child. Just like the penguins that sit on the eggs, right? All those nature shows, all those animals love their offspring. And then look what we do. You're like, how? How can we do the things we do to our children? Yeah. It was such an opportunity. But that's not the last one. The last one, grandparenting, stepping stone to sainthood, is your last shot. <laughs> Now, admittedly, as we go along, these vices that we choose to suppress and enter into all these forms of injustice, they calcify. We don't become better and better. We become worse and worse if we engage in vices. You can see it on older people, their faces, the etching lines in the face. Is it a scowl? Is it resentment? Bitterness? Hatred? And then the people that love, that give and give, and look at their faces. You see what I mean? And what you see etched on the face is not just in those faces. It's in the soul. They have become who they are. And that's been the point all along. But even still, even when you're almost at the end and you've still been wrecking things, you have a signpost that says, love your grandchildren at least. God gave us family for so many reasons, but one of those reasons is it's a signpost of love. 
over and over and over again, saying, love, love, love. Why? Because God wants us to turn the ship. He wants us to turn the ship. Repentance means to turn around. Flip it around and go the other way. So, we can pursue a life that's ultimately empty, or we can pursue a life of love. Look at all of these things. Verse 28, 29. Envy, covetousness, wickedness, malice, strife, deceit, gossip, slanding, hating, insolent, boastful. All of these things are what? They are personal because sin hurts people. It hurts the people we love and it hurts the people we hate. It hurts them all. And it distorts us and twists us and makes us completely incapable of loving God. And therefore, completely incapable of being the sorts of people fitted to love God forever. That's what vice does to you. That's why vice separates us from God. Look what the last lines here. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. They keep friends together and a little society of people who all agree with them. True suppression as a form of society. You see, let's back that up. Did you just say deserve to die? Disobedient to parents? Well, <laughs> let's think that through. Why is disobedience death penalty? First of all, St. Paul is not talking about legality here, is he? Not at all. He's talking about ethics, and not just ethics, but direct connection to God. If I'm the sort of person who just has no respect for my parental wisdom, am I the sort of person that's fitted to love and know my heavenly parent? If I won't receive wisdom from my father when he gives me wisdom, I'm not talking about a bad father, you understand? A good father that offers me wisdom. If I suppress and reject that, am I going to receive the wisdom that comes from above from the divine father? No. So the way we behave toward one another either makes us fit for God or corrupts us. Remember the two commandments. They go together. Greatest of all commandments sends you to the greatest possible object, namely God. Love God with all of yourself. The second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor. It's impossible. Why? Because to love God means you have to love goodness. You have to love truth. You have to love beauty. And therefore, you've got to love your neighbor. You've got to love them the way God loves them. And yes, that even means we have to love our enemies. You say, why would you have to love? Can't we just love our friends? Well, you should love your friends. Half of us have a problem with that. But yes, even your enemies. Because from God's vantage point, you were an enemy for a while, right? Not exactly divine friendliness, huh? Not what we call an ally. And while you were doing this, what did God do? He loved you. So if God can love you while you were an enemy of his, surely we can love our enemies. You're like, well, that sounds pretty difficult. Well, I didn't say it was easy. No, vice is easy. Virtue is hard. Don't become a Catholic if you want the easy way. Okay? Laziness is a vice. You don't get to know God by being lazy. All right, everyone understand the argument. Okay, now, where does this all lead? Chapter 2, here we go. It's going to get bad now. 
See, all of chapter one, it was about those people. You're right, it was all them. You were like, that's right, those, those pagans. Yes, those Greeks, those Romans. Therefore, St. Paul's a tricky guy. You have no excuse, oh man, whoever you are. In other words, if you're reading this, you're like, I'm going to stop reading right now. Okay. Choose suppression. You have no excuse when you judge another, for in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Have you ever judged someone else? Yep. And if you're so tolerant, you never judge anyone, then you're probably one of the most intolerant people, because you judge everybody who judges. Have you ever done something that you yourself judge someone else for? This is a massive self-indictment. It means you know the moral law, you hold others accountable, but then somehow you give yourself a break. And the problem is we've all done this. You say, why is this so important? Because we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Look, we wanted a God of justice. Well, we're going to get it. Do you suppose, oh man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Don't you know the kind God, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh no, but by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Then what's he going to do? He will render to every man according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. So if you pursue a life of virtue and nobility eternal life. But for those who are factious, do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, these two things, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory, peace, and honor for the one who does good. God is not partial. So all the pagan stories about divine judgment are true. Only it's way worse than we thought. The Book of the Dead will not help you. And this is why my colleagues in philosophy are so scared of God. Okay, I've asked the question, so, do you think Athena exists? And they all look at me like, what? I mean, I think it's an interesting question. They don't. They don't care. They only care about one being, right? Who is that? God. If he exists, that is not good. Mm -mm. Why? Judge. Exactly. Because being all-knowing, we'll put infinite here, it means he knows every single detail, including your intentions. He knows everything. Because he's all-powerful, There is no rebellion or resistance possible. Not going to work. And because he's perfectly good, there's no bribing the judge. In other words, the goodness and eternality of God guarantees perfect justice. And there's no way to get out of it. That is why people are freaked out by this being. And when we look at St. Paul's argument, frankly, it's hard to disagree, right? This is a very compelling argument. And if you're getting nervous, I understand. I'm nervous too. 
Now, there's three moves people will make at this point. The Greeks will say, the Gentiles, the non-Jews in other words, say, well, those Jews, they got the law, the tabernacle, the prophets. We got none of it, man. How can you hold us accountable? The Jews are saying this. Hey, God loves us. His chosen people, remember that? We're way better than those stupid Gentiles. They eat meat, sacrifice idols. They drink blood. They're sick. They're gross people. Surely, you know, nice status here. And what everyone is saying, the general pattern is, hey, I'm better than that guy. And we unfortunately make the same move, right? Like if you had to explain to God why he should really let you into heaven, probably part of your argument would be, A, I didn't do any of these, these things, and B, so-and-so did. Now, when so-and-so comes up to the judgment, what does he say? Well, that's true, but I didn't do any of those things, but so-and-so did. And that's so-and-so, right? And finally we get down to Hitler and Stalin, and they're edging out against, well, Hitler says, I only killed about 24 million, okay? And they were all different people. Stalin killed about 80 to 100 million, and they were his own people. Come on. He's worse than I am. And then there's poor Stalin, like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. There's nobody worse. <laughs> right? And what is the moral of the story? Here it is. Ready? This is what we human beings are saying by this argument. The standard of human conduct is being better than Joseph Stalin. That's the argument we're making. I'm sorry, it is not going to fly. It's not going to fly. <laughs> I guess we better, because it's getting really bad. Does this start speaking to the, the verse that virtually our, the, the only verse our society knows, judge not lest you be judged, in the sense that if I, I can't judge other people because I do the same thing. Is that the spirit of, of what that is? Because clearly we're supposed to judge. There's a book called Judges in the Bible. Well, we're supposed to judge truth right. from error. We're supposed to judge conduct. The issue about judging people is different from judging ideas. Okay. So people use that to refer to saying don't make any divisions or distinctions whatsoever. But we have to. We have to distinguish truth from false, sure. beauty from ugliness. So we have to make we have to discriminate about things that are worthy of discrimination. Judging people is really more about our attitudes to people. Because okay. we can judge someone's conduct, say, well, we really ought not to do that, but care about them, like you do with your children. Sure. So that's, I think, what's really going on with that judge not stuff. But yes, <laughs> uh, whatever kind of judgments we're making, we violate the standards we're using. That's the real argument. Okay. Yes. I did? <laughs> um, you did. <laughs> it seems to me that when you get to, when you pass on, when you die, that it's not about, um, it's not about were you better than somebody else. I think that's quite a immature kind of a question for the Almighty. <laughs> I mean, it is about, to me it seems like it's about did you do what Jesus said, which is 
did you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself? Because this is the whole of the law and the fulfillment of it. Right. So therefore, this has to just if that's if that if Jesus spoke true words there, then this has to fold into that. This has to be sit, sit right. within it. And why are those the two greatest commandments? So if you because, well, I mean, but what I'm saying is, it seems to me that when you pass on, it's not about. Did I do better than Stalin? Did I do better than my neighbor? Right. Because you're supposed to love your neighbor with all your heart. No. I mean, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, Correct. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to love God with all your heart. Right. Your soul. Your right. Mind. Did you do that? Right. That is, that seems to be, that is the, that's the judgment. Did okay. you do that? So are we better off if we use that standard? As yourself. I think so. I think you're a lot better off if you use that standard. Hmm. Because, yeah. because then it offers you a path to action. What is it that you're supposed to do all your life? It's not that you're supposed to fulfill Mosaic law and wash your hands three times and get get circumcised and um, correct. You know, That's and, true. And, and but let's look at the other. Agreed. Let's look at another part of the Mosaic law, though, which I think is law. easier than what you're talking about. The Ten Commandments. Yes. Most of them are don'ts. Yes. Don'ts mean just stand there. You're doing great. Don't steal. Okay, I'm just going to stand here. Don't commit adultery. Okay, I'm just going to stand here. Don't kill. I'm standing. The don'ts, you would think that would be the easy thing. Love means I'm going to do something. Yeah. So the mosaic moral side of it, God tried to reduce it to simplicity, the most basic elements, and what do we do? We covet. We commit adultery. We steal. We kill. We bear false witness. We can't even do that. So you say, let's make it easy. Let's just say, love one another. Okay. Yeah, just Remember, bad. Jesus said, if we loved each other, we would fulfill the law. Right. But that's the reason why. Because love is actually positive, and the law is negative. So if you're fulfilling the love, the positive, you're clearly not going to be killing the person you love or stealing from the person you love. But love's going to go way beyond not doing things. Yeah? So you are right that love is the answer. But I want you to think about why that's the answer. Well, because why is it if, the greatest commandment? If Jesus said that was the greatest commandment, Jesus said divine, holy, divine, holy, right? Okay, but why did he say it? Because then all of this has to fold within it. It all has, this all has to fit within. Yes. It's, he's perfect in his Yes. Correct, but why did he say, why is that the commandment? Could he have given us a different one? Uh, no. Why? No, because, because our commandment is to love God. It's, it's to love. Why? Because God is love. Right. Exactly. The greatest commandment is the greatest, and it could not possibly have been otherwise because of who God is. So, so we, we have to be lovers of God and our neighbors. What God is interested, what the whole point is, is to transform us from selfish shadows into people fit to know and love God. Right. That's the whole business of our lives. That's the point. That's the meaning of life. And so when we do that, we are transforming ourselves from what we were into beacons of human light. And then when we see God, we'll be like, oh yeah, I've been loving you all the time. He'll be like, well, yes, you have. And if we don't love goodness and we don't love beauty, and we don't love truth, and we don't love our neighbor, and joy. Don't forget joy. 
there's a whole bunch of great things, <laughs> then, <laughs> then we're not the sort of souls that are fit for God at all. You see what I mean? We don't have the right habits. We're not the kind of characters that are going to be able to enjoy God. Here's the thing. Do not think of Christianity as a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not the point. Hell is a negative. Getting out of a negative is a double negative, right? So, well, I don't want to go to hell. Well, stop thinking in terms of going places and start thinking about what the places are. Heaven is the place for those who love God like this. If you don't love God, you don't want to be in heaven. It will be extremely painful. And if you are a person full of love, your soul is too big to fit into hell. Great divorce. Yeah. Hell is a tiny crack in the ground. Only the tiny, small soul go there. Because what sin does, sin diminishes us, eats away at us. And what does love do? Builds. You become big. You understand? That's what makes you real. Like that story of the velveteen rabbit? Yes. Love makes you real. So, yes, love is the answer. But here's the problem. How do we get there when we have all this destruction and vice in our lives? You're saying, we've got to get here. I agree with you. Let's, we're stuck here. Fortunately, we can go on to Romans 3. Whew. How much time? I don't have Elisa here. Does anyone? Am I, 20 minutes. Oh, 20 minutes. We'll do all of justification theory in 20 minutes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, we will eventually have the rest of this on our website. We'll get it up, oh, so you'll be able to hear the, the remaining part. But there is hope. Don't leave without hope. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's good, too. Okay, you can shoot. Thank you. And we'll, we'll make sure you find out the rest of the story. But you are right. You're right. Okay, so what then? Uh, go to chapter 3. What is the point of the law, the moral law? What does it really do? Well, have a look at line 19. Now, we know chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Why? Because the law exposes our sin. That's why when we hear the moral law, we get uncomfortable. The light goes on, the rats hide, Yeah. So trying to do more following the laws doesn't solve all the deficiencies you've already corrupted, right? That's Aristotle's problem. He has no solution for that. But finally, hope. Now the righteousness, same word justice, of God has been manifested apart from the law. So justice under the law entails condemnation. We are screwed. That's why when Jesus came, he said, look, you know, the world is already condemned. I'm not here to condemn the world. That sentence has been passed. Sermon on the Mount, he made it clear. You can't possibly keep it. You can't keep it. You can't, you can't look at adultery. He expanded the meaning. Looking upon one woman to let a murder is not killing somebody. It's being angry in your heart. Yeah. You yeah. not even see it. How can you keep, you can't keep that? Well, let's keep in mind that every single choice is still free. Okay. But yeah, we're not, we've not done very well. Right. But now, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What righteousness is that, you ask? The justice of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, so that's the simple solution. You're like, what and does all that mean? Yeah, exactly. Very complicated. We've got to take this apart to understand this. So there's a justice of God under the law. If applied, we're in trouble. There's also a justice of God in Christ through faith. And this is the love side of it. In other words, God knows full well we are in trouble. He knows full well we're in trouble. So he had to do something to solve the problem. Remember we said under Aristotle, we need divide invasion. Not just this or that, God loves this guy and the God loves this one. But for everyone, a cosmic problem requires a cosmic solution. We need a monster-sized solution to fix these problems. This brings in omnipotent power and omnipotent love. But it must be done in a way that satisfies God's justice. How? Well, we are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood. So here's the point. Sins must be paid for. And so the church has this idea of atonement, of sins being atoned, paid for, but it's vicarious or substitutionary. So think of it like this. Here we are, us, with our sins and judgment. Here's Jesus with his perfection and eternal life. Basically, we do an exchange. He takes our sins and dies for them on the cross, and we get his perfection and eternal life. That's the mechanism. The sins are paid for so that God's justice is satisfied. Now, here's the problem. This does not seem to make any sense. Let's suppose you were committed a crime and you got sentenced to five years. And I say, oh, I'll do the time. The judge is going to be like, if you did the time, what we would be doing now is committing two more injustices. First of all, you're the one that committed the crime. You need to do the time. Secondly, if I condemn an innocent man, now I've committed another injustice. How has anything been resolved? And some people look at Jesus being the innocent man, and God heaps all the sins on him and kills him like, ta-da, problem solved. But is it really like that? I think not. Let's suppose someone does something pretty bad to you. Can I forgive that? Can I forgive it? No, can I forgive if someone does something cruel to you? You say, what do you have to do with it? Exactly, nothing. Can that person forgive themselves? 
No. Who's the only person who can forgive if someone does something harmful to you? You. And when you forgive that debt, you have to eat a harm, don't you? Suppose they pop the tires in your truck. Vandalism. You say, I'll forgive it. <coughs> Who's going to not be paying for the tires? You are. Suppose they break your priceless Ming vase. Suppose they say horrible things about you. You don't strike back. You... The only person who can forgive is the person who's been offended. You understand? And that offense is costly. That's why forgiveness is very difficult for us. We have to eat the sin, right? Jesus isn't another, it's just some innocent guy. He's God. So it's not like God heaps our sins on some innocent bloke who then suffers on the cross. We're like, well, too bad for him. No. God is taking the sins on himself through the cross because he is the one who is the judge. So if he chooses to forgive the sins and take the hit, oh, the hit is being taken. That's why we say that on the cross, St. Paul goes so far as to say he became sin for us who knew no sin. He entered into the full horror of all human sin. The horror that we engage in in our thinking and our behavior and our imaginations when we do it, as well as the horror on the people that we do it to. On that cross, Jesus took all of that at once. The whole thing. And he went. He took it. That's what we mean by this exchange. So it's not some innocent guy just taking this hit. God expiates the sin by becoming the sacrifice for it. And by that means, offers us a different justice, not our own, because we are lacking. He offers us Christ's justice. And forgives sins. Now remember what forgiveness is. Okay? When we talk about forgiveness, I forgive you your sins. What's the direct object there? Some of you remember grammar? English teachers. teachers. All of a sudden, no memory of teaching English. I forgive you your sins. What's being forgiven here? The sins. The you is the indirect object. That is to whom or for whom the action is being done. Technically, we don't forgive each other. And God doesn't forgive us either. Our sins are forgiven. We're used to thinking of forgiveness as a nice word. Wrong. The Greek word forgive is afiemi. That's the word for divorce. Not nice. But that's reasonable. Because sins are not nice. When God forgives your sins, he is divorcing them. Putting them away. You understand? 
That is why for us to be forgiven, we must do what? Put away our sins. We must turn to want to love God. And when we want to love God, we realize, oh great, here we are burdened by this massive boatload of vices. And we are overwhelmed by the guilt of that. And when we enter into the faith of baptism, our sins are expiated, washed away through, excuse me, through Christ's act and put away. And that is why there is no faith without repentance. There is no faith that doesn't entail a life of love. The whole Protestant controversy, faith without works, all complete nonsense. The argument that Paul's talking about, Romans 3, is about the works of the law, not works of love. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? When James says, now we know that a man is justified not just by faith, but by works, he's talking about works of love. Why? Because to be made right is to A, put away the sins, yes, but B, then do what? Love. To grow those virtues. Why? So that you can love God, to know God. If you're not fitted to know and love God, you're not going to be loving and knowing God. You understand? And if you don't want to love God, then you have no business being a Catholic. Because that's kind of the mission. You're like, well, think about it. Jesus says, don't even put your hand to that plow unless you're willing to go all the way with it. He said, I'll be there with you. But this is serious business. It's a full-scale commitment to goodness, truth, justice, beauty, and the acceptance of this amazing offer. Notice what St. Paul says. It is a gift to be received by faith. So when, I don't know if, I'm sure the deacon already knows, those people who still need to be baptized, if there's any of you in that situation. When you enter into the waters of baptism, that is your act of faith, whereby you are receiving this gift. It's an extraordinary transformation. And a whole bunch of other things happen when that happens, which we'll talk about later. But at that point, you enter into eternal life. Why? What is the definition of eternal life? It's not living forever. Vampires live forever, and they don't have eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. That is the mission, to become people that are fit to love God. And so when we start lives of faith by accepting this form of justification from God, God's own righteousness being freely given, we expiate and cleanse our record. Our guilt is crushed. And we finally feel free. And then we start moving ahead to put on love. That is what salvation is. Questions? Yeah. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. Yeah. There's a lot to that statement. That yes. It's, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. <laughs> In many, many, many ways. Because remember, the point of the law is to point to redemption. Yeah. On many, many ways. We will see this more when Elisa talks about the Bible and how this story is being told. I've been kind of telling you how this story is being told from the pagan philosophers and pagan religion. Well, it's all in Judaism too. And we got to talk about that story. But we're going to have a whole discussion on that massive story coming out of Judaism 
which has all been pointing us in this direction. How the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the commandments, is the image of Mary holding the eternal word, right? It's all there. The whole thing is there. It's everywhere. So it's going to be great. It's on our ceiling in our church, too. Well, yeah. This this Ark of the Covenant for Mary. Yeah, the paintings are good, especially when you go to Rome. We've got to find a way to get ourselves to Rome. That'd be an awesome end to RCI, wouldn't it? And now we're all going to Rome. (laughs) Well, Deacon's still working on the funding for that. Anyone? (laughs) That's right, it makes sale. All right, any questions? Any other questions about uh, the program of salvation, uh, the means of justification, what justification is, and the role that baptism as an act of faith, the sacrament of faith, plays in that? Yeah, it's got to, you got to give it time to gel. Reread Romans 1 through 3. That's a good move because now you know, you'll understand it as you read it. And then next week we will start going to see how that process from baptism goes on. And it's through three additional virtues. Not the cardinal natural ones of justice, moderation, wisdom, and courage, but three supernatural ones. The first one of which, of course, you've already seen. It begins with faith. The end one you already know is love. And then there's the intermediary one, which is the only way to take faith and turn it into love, and that is hope. Okay, and then we will go back to the question of King Priam and the problem of suffering, and this time we'll engage it with an omnipotent God. And, oh, it's going to be good. So don't miss next week. Make sure you bring along with you your New Testament text, because we'll be looking at St. John's text, probably, and certainly Romans 8 in depth. Oh, it's so good. Okay, Deacon, you want to? Finish this up, or are we? Knock me off. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>